0: Hey everybody, this is Kendall from Recording Lounge. We've got a really special show today. This is part one of a two-part interview with mixer, producer, recording engineer, extraordinaire, all of the above, Mark Endert. Um, Really big influence on me. He's got some really great credits to his name, including working with Gavin DeGraw, Fiona Apple, Maroon 5. And uh, one of his more recent credits is the Train album, Save Me San Francisco. He mixed that album and that album's, of course, if you've been following it at all, if you're a fan of Train, exploding on the uh, top charts right now. And, I mean, he's mixed some really well-known stuff. He mixed and, and produced and helped engineer the whole uh, Gavin DeGraw's Chariot record. Uh, he did a lot of work with Fiona Apple's record, uh, Title, And just, just all-around great guy. I got a chance to sit down with him, and we talked for quite a while. Um, got some really great insight into some of his methods and also some of his philosophies on the way that he looks at mixing and music and how the industry has changed. So um, here is part one of my interview with Mark. Hey Mark, how's it going? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic today. It's so great to talk to you. What's going on?
1: We uh, had a shuttle launch this morning, so there's kind of a lot of people. There's like, I think, 500,000 people in our wow. little area, which is um, a lot more than normal. Wow, <laughs> so
0: you're you're in Florida, right? I am, yeah. Some some of my favorite things have been even recorded and produced completely in Florida. Uh, That's
1: well, yeah. People have asked me, "Oh, how are studios in Florida?" And I'm like, "I don't, I don't think there are really any that are, you know, traditional recording studios. There's a lot of hip hop rooms, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I guess um, the internet, of course, which is you know the way we're even able to do interviews and stuff like that mm-hmm. over the phone. It's it's the same way with the music industry where. Um, there was about a 3 year period where i was in la and i turned to my wife and and i think 5% of the clients were even coming down to the the studio to listen to the mixes hmm. they would say just just yeah, just send it to me and and these are people that were like literally blocks away i mean i know the people yeah. in santa monica didn't want to get on the 405 and drive all the way to studio city yeah.
0: <laughs> well and and now they even have plugins like what's that one uh it's called so- it's like source live or sure yeah source connect yeah and, and and I mean those things are fantastic, and people like you said even a mile away are like, I just get on source live, yeah we were kinda you kind of mentioned like you know people come in from hip hop backgrounds and things like that, which to me, I see a lot of hip hop guys just start to do things like in their house and like, again, like smaller studios. Um, do you think that's like part of the whole rise of home recording and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Interfaces? I
1: mean, I think hip hop music is one of those genres that it does require a little less, I'll say, like acoustic space. You mm-hmm. know, like if you're recording a traditional band set up, like, you know, drums and guitars and bass and that kind of thing, where there's live playing, um, it requires a bit more out of the studio recording space, like the acoustic space. With hip hop, you know the creativity of those records is derived out of pretty much intense programming grooves based on
0: really tight sounds too yeah really
1: tight sounds with computers and stuff like that so it does require less and therefore i think it does open up a lot more of the possibility for people to do uh those projects out of smaller studios or even out of their homes i mean
0: yeah like do you have a you know it seems like everyone's got an opinion on that do you have an opinion on like do you think it's like ruining the industry and you know you know what i mean
1: I think it's actually improving the industry because, and now this is coming from a guy who's a total idiot. I put a I put a nine thousand J, you know, in a building that I own on my property, so <laughs> I basically have you know a nine thousand J at home, which is just, it's yeah. just on yeah. paper. It all it all sounds good on paper, but I mean, it's quite a feat, you know, upgrading the air conditioning and just oh,
0: absolutely. yeah,
1: you know, it's a fifteen hundred dollar a month um, power bill. And it's only a 700 square foot space for the, you know, the control room and like the offices near it. And it's like that all being said, I th- I think it's a great thing that people uh, were able to, to move into their, whatever their personal workspace might be. I think a lot more music can get uh, produced that way, you know, written and yeah. produced and released. And I think it's just awesome. Not everybody had a backing of someone, whether that be a record company or someone to, to go into some studio yeah and pay i mean when i was you know working in studios the going rate could be 2200 2400 and that was for a decent room and if you were in new york of course it would get more It'd get closer to three thousand dollars and then it started to trail off to 600 yeah. and then 1400 but that's still if you could put those that money into the actual product the actual record
0: yeah
1: um in a slightly more efficient manner than yeah it it uh I think that's great. I think
0: it's. I think thing with all with all that stuff, there's still like problems. You know what I mean? Because people aren't getting the experience of going to a good room. Uh, One of the most common things that everyone's using is those drum replacers, and you know, I I'm not a big fan of them at all. (laughs) um, Because I just love good. Some of my favorite drum sounds are like, you know, things especially done by Brendan O'Brien, like early nineties and and, and even mid and late nineties. Sure. like what what do you think is is probably that the biggest problem for like people just starting out that doing it at home can't really give them, like like the thing that's really hurting them in.
1: Right, right. Well the only downside I do see, and it's made my job in a way we joke about it all the time here is we do get some multi-tracks here that are, that are, that you, that you would like them to be sonically maybe a little bit better, maybe yeah. with a little bit more of an engineering technique. And I, mm-hmm. Doug, who's my right hand guy here. I, we always joke, you know, has this made the job more difficult as a mixer or has it given you more like job security? Because you kind of know what to do to to <laughs> you know, really yeah. like enhance the sound. And so it's a fine line. And quite honestly, um, some of it, I would like to see people kind of get slightly better engineering chops because um, you would say, hey, if you know kind of the right and wrong ways to do things, then it gives you, it opens up many more possibilities as far as sometimes bending the rules is the right thing to do and yeah. push certain things like even harmonic distortion and all that can really be yeah. a benefit. On the other hand, there's been some very, um, uh, no, I'll say, novice recording things that we've done that end up sounding phenomenal they have like this character that you're like okay you probably wouldn't get this from a guy that really was a meter reader
0: well it's like they they hear it how they want to hear it in their head and they get it and to them that's right and then you know to us it's like a couple months later oh it's like oh there there's the White Stripes you know what I mean it's so Um, true No, I think that very first White Stripes album was done you know with like a four track in Jack White's house and that, I mean, even if it wasn't the best, I mean, it launched them, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, myself, really enjoy it. I think a lot more kind of creative music is coming out that way, and um, I personally like it. And at the same time, the the actual digital, you can call it the digital revolution, it's become so good. It's gotten so far, especially in the last four to five years. I've really seen... Leaps and bounds that now I'm all for it. I just like you know.
0: Yeah, it's it's cool. It's cool to see all the new stuff come out, and we're talking. You know, we're talking about people starting off and everything. Does do you think it takes a te- certain type of person to be an engineer or a mixer? Like when they, when they first start, or does it kind of like some people think you know being a drummer keeping rhythm is like intuitive, as opposed to you know oh no anyone can learn to sing anyone can learn to drum anyone can learn to
1: right it's interesting i do think there's some natural there is some a little bit of natural like ability that has to kind of be built in where you kind of have a knack for the balances of the instruments that are the emotional part of a song or a track so i think mm-hmm. there is a little bit of that natural ability is important at the same time people that end up loving what they do and end up really just maybe falling in love with the, the whole art of recording or the, the art of making records or just yeah. They just are are music lovers. They tend to kind of put in the hours and and you end up learning so much as you go anyway. I can't tell you. I mean, I I still learn stuff every day. I put the faders up and someone will hand me something that I've literally never heard before. And it's some home recording thing. And you're like, wow, how do I want to deal with this? And how do I want to get the punch out? And and, um, what happens is if you end up just loving that aspect, just loving what you're doing, you end up kind of probably becoming pretty good because... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and again it does take some natural ability. I will say that there are some people that just hear differently than other people. I got to watch Bob Clear Mountain wow. I got to assist for him on a this was in nineteen ninety. Um and watch him sit and make the smallest tweaks i mean the smallest tweaks and i would actually leave for a little bit and come back and two hours later he's still changing the, the amount of light reverb to dark reverb because he would set up two different 40 l's with different yeah. yeah and then and i would come back and go wow i haven't seen him really do anything but it's starting to sound pretty good and then i'd leave again come back 45 minutes later another hour later and it's starting to sound amazing before you know it you didn't really see what he did yeah yeah just you're like oh my god this guy's good like he just got so focused and i really learned from that i was like wow he didn't do there were some things that weren't crazy but these little tweaks and he just got into a headspace where he just really brought out the emotion and um and that that i'm just gonna have to say is natural talent and personality, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. and that's his, his style, you know? He's, it's his some, style. Some, some people are more extreme and others are more subtle, but they do more subtle rather than
1: it's so true i worked with tom and down in miami i was actually producing a record and asked him to mix a couple tracks and it was such a delight for me because he worked kind of not not how i work i I work much more i'm pretty methodical and and i kind of sit there and kind of try and you know really have the groove relate to me and and the vibe of the vocal and i kind of try and find out what makes the song tick and, and get its pulse and all that he just went in like a like with a machete it's just <laughs> uh, eq and oh my god he's new had an idea like. and, and it sounded phenomenal by the way it's yeah. not like it he was so musical and that's the part you know those lord algae brothers maybe they don't get credit for being really musical and they and they very much are and um and that again is probably just natural ability but um boy you're right it's like one person has one way of working the other has a totally different way of working and Um, you know, both, both methods can be extremely successful in in making, you know, cool emotional records.
0: Yeah. So you're, you're, I was reading your discography on the, uh, on your website and I was noticing there's, you know, lots of different genres and lots of, you know, some indie and some not so indie at all. And, uh, so if you could like try to look at all the productions as a whole, was there something common among them that like you think was the reason for the success like that they all shared right right interesting
1: well um common reasons it's funny because sometimes it'll be a different reason for each project, but uh, I think a common reason would be you know basically the whole idea of music is really you're selling an emotion and music for people when you when you actually find out how it relates to people that aren't actually in the business making the records, they're the people that have the radio on at work or you know they enjoy it in their cars, which can be a, a lot if you're living in a big city these days. But how it relates to them is it's really an emotional response when a record sells and people want to open up their wallets and go buy, go get it, you know, mm-hmm. go get it and add it to their life. And so I think what happens, the thing that each one of those records has that becomes successful is it, it speaks to those people in that way. And um, and sometimes it's a difficult thing to do. There was a Fiona Apple record was one that was 1996, and Alanis Morissette just take it off and become really, really, I mean, just
0: yeah, lightning in a
1: bottle. It was lightning in a bottle. It was unbelievable music. It was great emotion. She appealed to a lot of young people that felt the way she did that had a little bit of angst in them mm-hmm. and uh and the funny thing is fiona apple everyone was saying well, what's she gonna be like and we were like wow well she's kind of like a poet in a weird way she it's yeah. this poetry on her bed at, you know she was only 17 when she got signed anyway and uh and um 18 when she started making the record and so it's like a totally different thing she yeah. was much more introverted
0: much more that's a dark stuff and
1: exactly a lot less uh, you know there was no electric guitar if you want to just get down to the production of it there really was no the, the electric guitars were so minimal they actually did not sound good against Fiona's voice so it was very opposite of what Alanis was doing and, and people at the record company would come up to me and say I heard she's like Alanis Morissette and I'm like she's absolutely
0: <laughs> totally like
1: different it. than that and and the funny thing is, you know, she ended up selling 8 million records worldwide, which was a pretty big success for a shoot-off label from from Sony. Hmm. And um, and that, again, was just a different kind of emotion, a totally different type. And she appealed to quite a few people in a totally different way than an artist like Alanis Morissette did. And that's what's great about music is that, um, you know, you can have many, many different facets that'll, that'll affect people. So, um, that's what's enjoyable for me, and that's probably why my my discography, which I have to update, I haven't updated it in like a year and a half or two <laughs> years, but that's what for me has been so fun is over the years, I've tried to work on as many different kinds of things because I find it all so so interesting and so fun to be a part of it's It's not one of those where I just love guitar rock, and that's yeah. all I want to do. <laughs> well,
0: and it's funny because I was listening to a couple of songs you know just because like I've heard a lot of them. That you've done, and I was listening to some of them, and I was like, you know, I remember when this song was on the radio. I remember when this song was on TV. It's like, do do you know that they're gonna be popular when you're when you're working on them, or uh, or is it almost like uh, let's even take like this love, right, Maroon Five. When I mean is there like an extra pressure and they're like, No, no, this one's gonna be the big one. Did they tell you that or did they just go you know, like oh whatever?
1: It's so interesting how some of those go down. With someone like Fiona Apple, we joked when we were all done, I hope we didn't art ourselves right out of the business. I mean like we're never gonna <laughs> yeah. work again. And of course it did okay. It did wonderful and it's yeah. great. With something like this love, there were so many reasons that should not have really worked. It was a, a band that I was familiar with as Kara's Flowers like when I was producing Phantom Planet in 97. <clears> it <throat> was a long time ago. Yeah. Long and short of it, they got signed finally. They'd been passed on by so many companies and they were signed to a smaller label. Uh, it was a startup label. It was actually the first basically like the first record that the startup label was doing. And um, I knew the a and guy fairly well because we had done some other projects together. I heard this love and said, I have to work on that song. And he said, well, we're already, done. we're already done with the production of the record. And I said, yeah, but if you ever get stuck, that song, I think, could be realized in a slightly different way. And it's an awesome song. Now, granted,
0: yeah.
1: you can say it's an awesome song. And, and it's very much one of those things that no one might ever hear <laughs> after you're yeah. done. Yeah, That one just had a right feeling. And, and again, maybe the stars aligned for that. I did that song for basically nothing. It was funny. I said, if you pay for the studio time, I'll go in and do it. And I did a bunch of programming stuff, played a bunch of parts, and then I went into track record. And all I remember is we had a problem with one of the tape machines, and I had worked all day. I was about to print. It was like 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning. We had a problem with the two-track tape machine. It was distorting. And we had to call the owner down. Poor guy. He comes down, Mm -hmm. fixes the thing. And uh, we printed like four or five in the morning, and the record company nobody heard the mix, no one heard anything. They woke up the next day. I had already torn down the studio. My cartridge was out and gone, and we All sent right. off the mix, and that was it. <laughs> and and
0: you know, and then and then it's on TV and radio, and yeah, and,
1: and that was back in the days before you know anyone really nitpicked stuff. You know, it's so much harder to sell records these days. So. It takes quite a bit more to get things through the plumbing now, but yeah. back then, you know, I just did the mix, and um, it's not like the internet it was like the bandwidth that we have today. So I probably yeah. sent an MP3 or something. He heard it, was like, "Yeah, sounds great let's uh, Let's put it on the record.
0: <laughs> let's go ahead and tr- and I guess deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, then it was. I mean, was that the single, or did they even? Was, I mean, it
1: was. I mean, basically, when they heard it, they said, "Wow, this really does have kind of a." You know, even though they were doing the Neo Soul thing, it also had a classic mm. sound. You know, that could have been a Stevie Wonder song.
0: Yeah. But, that, I mean, all of their, I'm sure all of their jazz backgrounds just give it that vibe.
1: Yeah. And we talked about that. And the fact of the matter was, it's, it's extremely hard to break a debut artist at what you would call commercial hit radio, CHR, mm-hmm. Top 40. So to break an act like that, it was considerably easier of a path at, uh, rock Radio. So they said, well, what we'll do is we want people to know this is a band and this isn't like a... You know, at the time, boy groups are pop. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, so let's get uh, Harder to Breathe off as the first single we'll develop that at Rock Radio. and um, And then once they were able to do that, you can cross over, but you can't go back. That's what's funny about that. So they were able to build up a fan base. I think they worked Harder to Breathe for a year and I don't even know if they were gold by the end of that year i can't quite remember if they had sold 400 000, but i do remember by the time they were able to cross over to this love it was um it skyrocketed because it was much more of a a worldwide thing i think it was number one in like 22 countries for 13 weeks or something. Uh, I, I, <laughs>
0: so, I, I mean i remember it being popular i remember it being like new you know i remember the video i remember all of it um it's funny it's like how do you balance um doing all these different genres like do you have to start it with a different mindset or you just kind of start it like hey i'm gonna make a good song you know
1: right it is for me all about the songs and so often i find myself i do find myself gravitating to the songs and not so much the artist and what their lifestyle and their you know what their marketing if you want to call it that but so i end up really kind of gravitating to the songs and that that, for me, has always been um, the way I gauge things. Because there have been artists that I haven't even been that big of a fan of, but it could have been Marilyn Manson. There, there have been some great songs from Marilyn Manson. Kid Rock's first record, I remember first hearing Cowboy and going, oh, my God, yeah. this is awesome. And I'm not going to say I'm a fan of you know yeah. kind of music traditionally. So that that's always kind of what's kept me going, and, and I think that's why... It ends up being that um, I haven't really been pigeonholed into a, oh, he's the, um, I mean, I, I have done a lot of, like, acoustic-y kind of music, too. Yeah, like,
0: yeah. The what? singer-songwriter bass. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah.
1: And, but at the same time, to, to to work with, like, a Seether mix or something, which yeah. I, I, you wouldn't think, and uh, we just did, like, some country stuff, like I did a uh, Zach Brown. I mean, when you want to talk about songs, my God, those are songs and and. Yeah. I somehow have been blessed enough and lucky enough to be a part of these artists that I'm like, wow, this is this is great for me because I don't really chase like, oh, yeah, this kind of hook is what's popular, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's funny. I was reading on your on your uh, page and noticed that you, as you even said uh, today, you had earlier albums. You were more involved with the production and engineering.
1: Most of the. Um records that i produced i recorded all the parts as well sadly because <laughs> it's a lot of work sometimes when you're wearing the production hat you'd like yeah. to hire an engineer and say can you
0: just do this <laughs> yeah exactly so uh, do you i want i was really curious do you can you remember one of your most memorable moments of working with any of them i mean it could be any artist that you know in the engineering stage you know like the the studio magic that you always hear about uh you know that if we're lucky, we get to have it every now and then. You know, I've I've been fortunate enough to have it a couple of times. Can you remember any specific time that he really, you know, sticks in your brain?
1: Yeah, um, I can remember a couple of times, and um, one of them was probably with Gavin DeGraw. He was a just a really talented singer-songwriter, and I, I guess I wasn't expecting when you met him and talked to him, he'd be like kind of an aw shucks kind of guy. Like he was like, Oh, thanks man. Thanks. And he was really, you know, he's a hard man to pin down. I thought, wow, is this guy really the real, the real yeah. dude? I remember recording him and it was just, uh, he and myself were late one night at sunset and he was playing the piano and singing some overdubs on one of the tracks. And I remember just, it was actually the title song chariot.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I just remember getting, uh, I was literally getting teary eyed because I, I started looking at the remote and it was getting all blurry and I was like, it was towards the end when he's really belting and it's pretty heartfelt. And I remember thinking this guy is the real deal. Like he really yeah, no fake is talented and those kind of artists, they are kind of few and far between. Sometimes they're hard to manage like, getting what you think is their best out of them because yeah. they, they can be a moving target, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, so like that record was a difficult record to make at the same time. I definitely remember just him moving me where I was like, wow. And there's, there's also been other times like when, you know, <laughs> like I wasn't even a, a total Madonna, like record fanatic and getting to work with her. I remember her coming in and, and getting ready to sing. And they're like, okay. And I'm like, this is going to be great. Cause I don't think she has a voice really. And like, and, uh, her singing the first few lines of "Power of Goodbye," which we were recording for "Ray of Light," and I was like, yeah. "Oh my god, <laughs> I'm wrong." <laughs> she actually back. has a great voice. <laughs> like, of course, she had also just finished with avida Like, back, this is a long time ago, so yeah. she had finished like a, two discs of music for Avita. So I think she was really in vocal shape, so to speak. But um, yeah, yeah, I do remember kind of being starstruck. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, that that's cool. Um, on on sort of the mixing side now, was there a moment where it was sort of the magic for you, like it was like the light bulb that went on when, and it, you know, could have been a long time ago or whatever. So it's like, was there a moment that you can remember where you finally said, "That's it," like that's the sound that I want.
1: Right. Interesting. Well, um, with um, I'll say this, and and this still happens today. I'll leave a few names out of it, but uh, <laughs> but um. And actually, this one I'll just say flat out because I don't mind saying it. And uh, but this is early on where you're like, okay, do I kind of have what it takes? Do I have the wherewithal to get it done? Meaning, like the, the the politics and like the getting the artist to believe in you and all that. But do I have? this the raw goods, so to speak. And and I did a mix, the first pass of Criminal, which was on Fiona Apple's record. That um, mm-hmm. that's the actual one that made the record. It was my first pass, and i remember doing that mix and no one was around for the whole day yeah. and um and as they were walking in i remember i was feeling good about the track so i asked everyone to hang out in the lounge for a second i said can everybody go i just i'm trying to fix something i'm trying to fix something real <laughs> well I, I was pretty much done what i did is i went to tom who was tom banghart was the the house engineer I said tom can you get the two track ready let's just Print this down. Let's just bust this down real quick because I don't know what's going to happen. And you're on a Neve eighty seventy eight with like outboard gear and plate reverbs, and you know. So if they want to start messing with the mix, then um, I mean, just getting the plate to be back to the same reverb time can be a nightmare, depending on how crusty it is, you know. So, so we printed that down, and then they came in, and I remember kind of thinking, okay, well, I don't, I don't know how great that is, but at least I printed my first pass. Blah blah blah. So we, (laughs) it got tweaked for four days. For four days, they ran me into different directions. And I remember in the middle of day four, I said, Can we try, can I play something real quick? We just listen to one thing, sure. And (laughs) I remember Tom got out the first pass and we played it. And I I said, What do we think of this? And they're like, Well, this is great. (laughs) But after four days, of course, you've kind of lost some perspective or whatever. And so, I think that was an eye opening moment. I was 25 years old and um, I felt like I thought it was good. You know, I thought, yeah. hey, this hat, I think this is good, but you really don't know. And, and, um, long and short of it is, um, yeah, that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, Mark, I think just trust your gut instinct and I know what I did to the track. And, and then I started trusting that immediately. Like, okay, let's just, if you can keep your head on straight and just keep going, you'll uh, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: So to be involved in some of these acts that are that are very commercial, um, like like maybe the Madonna or uh, the Gavin deGraw or the Fray or whatever like that, and you mentioned because you mentioned you know the four day tweaks. It's like what what is the hardest part about dealing with the corporate side that you find? Um, you know, the labels and the AR guys and all that. What 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 do you think is like the hard part for you that makes your job either more challenging or or just more frustrating?
1: Right. Um there was a point where the hardest part was having and and I'll just be quite honest and quite frank was having a, a you know, an AR person who's maybe a few years younger than you are who really hasn't had a I don't want to say hasn't had a hit yet, but literally has not had a hit yet and maybe mm-hmm. only been at the record company for two or three years. I've had guys saying, you know, trust me, trust me on this as they huh. want me to push faders. And in this side of the line of work, you know, you do take your ego out of it and you say, no one cares that you're on, you know, blah, 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 you know, millions of records. Like then, you never really can ever say anything. You just do what you think they want and i started to learn that from guys who had been doing it for a while too i realized that it's not a personal thing often people aren't personally saying anything about your mix they just want sometimes they just want to get their little take on it you know Mm -hmm. including the R guy who's asking you to make tweaks, saying trust me maybe he just wants to get his his influence in it so if you can take your ego out of it say all right let's just do it you're doing it for the team so to speak you never know that R guy may go back to his company and because he got his way um, really champion it for you. He might take it internally and go, you hear that? You hear that? I don't care what it. Is. You hear that hi-hat, how loud that is? That was my idea. You know, he could say that. <laughs> and that can be cool. If that's what champions it through the label, Yeah. then maybe that's the right thing. And um, sometimes it's very hard to do, though. I got to admit, you're tired. You've worked 12 hours. You've busted your butt. You think the mix sounds pretty darn good. And someone's telling you stuff, yeah. and you're like, oh, God. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> especially especially the, I think the worst is probably if if like you worked a long time to get like some cool vocal effect and then they said they didn't like it,
1: yeah yeah and and the hardest part for me is not having the tweaks done to something you've already done, it's having the tweaks done back to the way you had it, yeah, that's the one where I get the the call <laughs> two days later, and they're saying, you know dude, do, do you remember what you had on?" Tuesday nights mix and you're like yeah kind of like okay can you get that back and you're like oh my god how good how well did we document <laughs> you
0: know yeah because I was really intrigued by the, you know they're talking about the magic with Gavin do you do a lot of pre-production on the albums that you would engineer or like do you feel like there's there's a lot of you know arranging things to be done like that you hear a certain way or do you are you more like the you know let the artist do what they feels right sort of guy or does it vary yeah
1: yeah um, it can vary a bit per song, but with the albums that I did, you know, produce pre-production, I always thought was a lifesaver. I basically built most of. Makes me wonder before I ever flew to L.A. from Maroon Five, the whole thing was in Logic. Um, it was four days uh, here before I ever flew to L.A. and, and recorded a note there. So, yeah. and-
0: so what do you what are you looking for whenever you're doing a lot of that pre-production? Like what what's the big um, I guess I, I should.
1: I know exactly what. Yeah, hard to big, word. The big thing for me is this, and this is kind of the way I have always worked. And not everyone works this way, and I can appreciate the guys that just that basically just go for a song and say, "Hey, let's just see where it takes us." I'm pretty much the guy that says, "Let's deconstruct this song." back down to, and I, I do play piano, so back down to the piano and the vocal, mm-hmm. and I want to see what makes it tick from a certain level of the melody and the piano, and then I immediately add bass next, and then I start building the drums. And But basically, it always works for me so well that way, and I don't know why, but everything down from kick drum patterns, I can figure them out so much more easily if I just deconstruct the thing back down to minimal, And find out how that melody works and then you go you know this kick drum pattern is great because look at how it plays in between the vocal lines and that kind of thing and that's how i've always done it and and believe me i can appreciate the people that just go and say no this is the song this is the way it's supposed to be you know yeah i'm much more of like the methodical whatever you want to
0: call it so you would consider yourself a pretty technical person in that way and
1: yeah definitely and that can be good and bad um because some of my favorite records are ones that y- you know there was not a lot of technical stuff involved. You yeah. Know?
0: I think one of the things I talked about on one of my podcasts recently was that, like, people think that a lot of professional mixers like yourself and, like, you know, the Lord Algae Brothers and all that, I, I don't think they realize that the tracks that they're getting are recorded in great places, <laughs> you know, like, right. Um, a lot of the hits that people hear and, and that they want to you know, emulate are recorded. Like the dry sounds are, are, have a lot of emotion, a lot of good sounds to them. Especially if you're working in a studio that the people do a lot of EQing and compression to tape. Um, it can start to sound like a rough mix by just setting a couple levels and pans. It's true. Uh, um, and, and I don't think a lot of the home studio guys can realize that because they feel... The intuitively start their careers, essentially, by fixing. Yeah. And, and so it's like, well, how much, how much of that do you think, in, in your job, like the music that you work with, relies on the mix part, making it, you know, getting from this point to, uh, you know, getting from point A to point B, point A being the roughs that you hear when you first get it versus hit on the radio or on a, on a movie.
1: Yeah. Well, for me personally, I, sadly, I'm going to have to say and i I don't believe it used to be this way, but sadly it's it's a lot of work <laughs> it's actually a lot of work because I get a lot of tracks. This is just me personally. I get a lot of tracks that are recorded from all over the place, you know, whether yeah. that be small studios, home studios, some are large studios, but it's rare that we'd ever get something where they said, "Oh, yeah, we went into Henson and we cut the drums. you know yeah. I get the records that I'm working on now and have been for the last you know. Four and five years, they're recorded wherever you know the artist was, and and sometimes that's that can be South Carolina in the case of what's going on right now. And actually, a lot of large rooms, great rooms, closed, like in New York City, yeah, they're they're no longer so. Um, I would say a lot of work is done at the mix stage, but um, I've opened a multi tracks this is back in the tape days, and I was always shocked at how much of the effects and things were printed. I'm sure if you put up a Duran Duran, you know, any of the Nile Rodgers stuff, you'd probably be like, wow, they really committed their ideas. And I love that concept. Like, I love it. And on the song right now, it's 163 tracks. Um, That's normal for us now. And it's because no one really has to commit to those decisions early because Pro Tools and these computers have gotten so good Whether A lot of your listeners and whatnot, if they're using Logic, I think some of these things are unlimited track counts. And yeah. yeah. As computers get better, it just makes for more, um, you know, ability of track count and processing. So the problem with that is that's a double-edged sword. One is it's fantastic because you can do whatever the heck you want. Number two is (laughs) it's not so hot because at some point you'd like to make the decision and commit, you know. Yeah. And so the funny thing is, as a mixer now, I've found that my role has changed. That I'm the one that commits the decisions. And I, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at a playlist right now, and there's three three mics for the kick drum and three mics for the snare. And you know, it's it's kick in, kick out, kick sub, and yeah. snare is snare top, snare bottom, snare side. And it's like any of the records that I produced, even as technical and as geeky as I am. There was one track for kick and one yeah. snare, yeah. and the even, snare- even if
0: they just summed <laughs> it, you know, like up up on the console. Oh yeah, I mean, and that, that seems to be something that I always read about guys doing. They're like, oh yeah, I might have five mix mics on the kick, you know, in the tunnel or whatever, you know, whatever way right. they choose to do it. But it's like oh, I, I don't want to mess it. I'll just sum it. And so it's like the decision making is it's like because a lot of people aren't using the consoles, and a lot of people aren't a lot of people are more afraid. To track with EQ and, and things like that, um, they're like, oh no, no, I'll just keep that for later and I'll just sum them all later. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you got all the guys saying, no, digital summing's ruining the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of um, So when you first get a song, what what is the first thing that you do?
1: The first thing I do is I basically turn up the bass pretty loud and I take the lead vocal. I don't care so much about the backgrounds as first, but I take the vocal and the bass a little bit of the drum kit, like the kick drum and a few things, and leave them in. But I kind of drop everything low, because yeah. I kind of want to see what makes the song tick. And it's amazing what you can find out, because you'll see something labeled shaker. Well, you don't know what the shaker really sounds like, but instead of you know, chicka, 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 maybe it's cha, cha-cha-cha, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. It's still the shaker with the same timbre. Difference is one is a gallop, and the other's straight time. So you're like, oh, wow. The gallop Completely defines this chorus or whatever, and yeah. you end up really finding out that okay, how loud do I want to put stuff? Okay, well I can tell you right now, when that chorus hits, that shaker is going to be uber loud. That's what yeah. I do, and and the only way that I find that, or at least the quickest way that I find that, is by kind of lowering everything way back to see what the song is supposed to be about. You know?
0: Yeah. So so are you? You mentioned not having all these track counts. Does that also um, require you to? edit more you know like chop out uh you know this verse has no electric guitar like doing a lot more chopping and editing and right automating
1: we do a lot of that and i i don't yeah i don't like to, to advertise but we end up doing a lot of that kind of thing where it's like i guess the only cool thing i have going is people do kind of trust my opinion if i say like mm-hmm. hey you know what with all this going on you don't need it and let me lower it pretty far and see if we need it. Ultimately. It's worked out where people say, you know what, that is working the best. It is too crowded or whatever. are not
0: missing it, yeah.
1: You do need to gain a client's trust, so you probably have to do a couple mixes in before they start saying, yeah, let him do what he wants kind of thing. But I've been lucky in that way where people say, you know what, he does have a, he does have a sense of the sound of our band, so let's let him keep going. <laughs>
0: yeah. So everyone, that was part one. On the next interview, we'll talk uh, more about like the technical stuff, about some of Mark's detailed methods, about how he gets the sounds that he gets, some of the gear he likes, and also some more questions maybe about working with some of the artists he works. So hope you guys tune in in about a week for the next part. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you guys soon.